Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for joining us this week. You're going to be so glad that you did. Jasmine's guest is Christopher Soul Eubanks, and he is just this incredibly dynamic animal activist. If you're not following him on social media, you have to fix that. He's just kind of carved out his own place within the movement. And he's also involved in human rights and the climate movements and the intersections among all of these. And I just love the work he's been doing. You know, you don't have to like just get employed by an animal rights organization, though he does work with some organizations to be an animal activist and he proves it. He really embodies like why we started our hen house and and we get into that even further on the bonus content. On this week's flock bonus segment, I will be going deeper with Christopher, who is also sometimes known as Soul. And as always, if you're a flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you are a flock member, please join us for our flock Friday Zoom calls, which are switching to once a month, first flock Friday. At 4 p.m. Eastern, we will be expanding them to 75 minutes, always bringing on a special guest and having a question of the month that is activist-focused. We will be continuing to focus on how to be better activists and how to take care of ourselves in these tough times. And in addition to continuing to offer Flock Friday, but on the first Friday of the month, I will also be available to meet one-on-one with Flock members to talk about your activism. This is something that has sort of like organically unfolded over the past few months as more and more flock members have wanted to chat about what they're doing in their lives around advocacy and various things that's related to their animal rights. So I've enjoyed it. And we thought, well, let's make it official. Let's make it another flock perk. So in addition to the first flock Fridays and the one-on-one times with me and the bonus content and the flock Facebook group, We will also be uh, sending regular videos personalized to our flock members and also expanding the length of the bonus content. So I'm super excited to continue to work with those who are able to become flock members. And for everyone else, I'm so glad that you're with us and that you're able to enjoy our hen house and the animal law podcast because we love what we do. Yeah, I love that that the Flock Friday Zoom calls are becoming, uh, you know, we always thought it was a temporary thing for the for the pandemic. And not that the pandemic is over, it's definitely not over. But, you know, now that things are easing up a little bit, like we just kind of didn't want to let it go. So we're switching it to once a month. But, uh, you know, it's really nice to ha- be able to look forward to those get togethers. Yeah. And to expand them because it's always it's always like the last two minutes is when, you know, of course, just like therapy, right? <laughs> like the last two minutes is when <laughs> things start happening and then we're like, oh, okay, bye. So anyway, that's a lot of fun. So this past week has been interesting. Um, I, You know that saying that is frequently attributed to Gandhi, but Gandhi did not say it. It's a myth, which is first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you then they go vegan. You know that? that, (laughs) Yeah, then you win. Right, then you win. The actual last line. Yeah, you've been doing a lot of fighting fighting, or or getting fought. You've been getting fought a lot this week. Yeah, Yeah. and I haven't... I I personally have heard a lot about it, but you know. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, I, I haven't had my armor on is the thing. I, I don't know why. I'm not in the mood for it. I'm not in the mood for fighting. And, you know, sometimes when you're in the mood for fighting, you can pick a fight or you can be more, be a little bit more confrontational about veganism or, or choose a particular activist tactic that week that is a little bit more in your face. But I am not there. I am exhausted. I am trying to like really harness my energy for uh, all of the work that I do and for my own self. I, I've been expanding on these issues on my new newsletter, Jasmine's Jargon, which you can find at jasminesinger.substack.com. And in addition to that, I've just really been kind of trying to find a way to refuel. And uh, it's been, it, it has not been a week that has offered a lot of fuel. I, I, I have felt a little depleted both on a personal level and on a social media level and on a professional level, all related to veganism. So I just kind of wanted to chat briefly about that because um, on a personal level, I, I have known, you know, I've known a, someone who I've known very well, who's stopped being vegan after like many, many, many years. And that's been a bit shocking for me to deal with, especially because, you know, yeah, that's really tough. Well, yeah. And I mean, we all know ex vegans, I'm pretty good at giving advice to people about ex vegans, but then suddenly it's someone in your personal life and it's like, wait, what? You know, this one was a shocker. Uh, on a social media level, I suddenly there's these folks on Twitter who have found me and would like to fight me about veganism. And sometimes I don't feel like it. So sometimes I don't, that's okay. And then on, on another sort of professional layer, I gave a talk the other day for Earth Day that was part of my literary agency. They organized it and it was about f like food writers and eco activists and talking about Earth Day. And I was there to be the vegan in the room. And it was really a combative environment, which since then I have heard is pretty common with Clubhouse that because you can kind of like hide behind the fact that it's just audio and, you know, like it, there is some degree of anonymity. People are just like, Feel, feel like they have full permission to be assholes, not realizing. Like, I I still contend that these people were industry plants. Well, I by plants, I don't mean plants. I mean, <laughs> they got planted there to right. like, you know, I can't like if I was the industry and I was facing the level of hostility and vulnerability that the industry and by, of course, industry, I mean, the meat industry is facing. I would do things like that, you know, just go mm -hmm. on. I, just go on Clubhouse, find uh, or any other open access uh, discussion group, and and find something about veganism. You can probably search for it and and stick somebody on there to start an argument. That's mm -hmm. what I would do. No, I see your point. This definitely was not touted as a vegan thing. I think it was a little surprising to some folks that there was a vegan in the room. But you know, it was Earth Day, and yeah, because what does what does veganism have to do with environmentalism? I mean, <laughs> why, wh what were you even doing there? Well, the funny thing is that I actually started it by kind of making fun of myself a little bit and saying, you know, when I went vegan seventeen years ago, there was a lot of hostility between the environmental groups and the animal rights groups, and I used to have this button that said, "You can't eat meat and be an environmentalist." But I was in my 20s and full of a lot of fury. And now I'm in my 40s and full of a lot of fury. But unfortunately, I have to know to show, show up as a, more of a grown up now and have slightly better communication tactics sometimes now. So for example, I recognize that the world is not going to all go vegan. So I try to, especially on Earth Day, make the point that, you know, unless we want to live in a world where the rich eat animals and the poor eat nothing, or if we can somehow create three extra planets 
which is what we would need if everyone on the planet ate meat the way that Americans did, then we have to come up with another way of moving forward. And it has to be a way that moves us to a more plant-based existence. So I was basically saying, wherever you are, we kind of have to deal with this collectively, but also personally as we embrace veganism more and more or go fully vegan for those of you who will go fully vegan. And it was, it was just, people just hated my guts. They hated me. <laughs> they hated me. I, I, I mean, I've given thousands of talks about veganism or activism in my day. And I got off of that one and I just was like, I quit, you know, and I'm done. I, I don't quit. I'm not done. But there was that moment of like, wow, the minute you're outside of the echo chamber, sometimes it can feel very aggressive. And all I can think is that the world is feeling very uh, sensitive and aggressive right now. And anyone who's going to stand up for anything is going to get a slightly more, ex you know, extreme reaction than maybe they would have before the pandemic. But do you feel like the, the quote you started off with, do you think there's any truth in it that one of the reasons that we're facing more or is it possible that we're facing more hostility than we used to? And if is one of the reasons that we're seeing more success and, and people are more threatened? I, I think it's possible. I want to look at it in that direction. At least it's a positive way of looking at it. Exactly. I think you could we could choose to look at it that way. And, you know, once I got over feeling really shitty after that week of like between the person I know very well, stop, stopping their veganism and the the Twitter people who are like yelling at me. <laughs> and then the the clubhouse experience after I got over that and sort of like took some time to rebuild and focus in on what matters again. I, I choose to see it that way. I choose to see well, it as rising I think there's validity in it. People used to laugh at veganism all the time. I don't see a hell of a lot of that anymore. Mm -hmm. I think it's, yeah, it's mostly hostility. And I think it's, we're used to that, but we're going to have to get more used to it. And then we're going to mm -hmm. win. Just keep remembering that we're going to win. One of the reasons that I'm thinking that is this Ezra Klein column. You know, we love Ezra because now that he's moved to the New York Times, he's an even bigger voice and he's vegan and I only trust vegans. So <laughs> it's hard to <laughs> like, like on every other issue in the world, when somebody says something and I'm you know, thinking, oh, that that's an interesting point. Maybe I should consider that. And then I remember, yeah, but they're not vegan. So like, why am I listening to them? Because I just think people who aren't vegan are stupid. But Ezra Klein, oh well, all right, my hostility level may be rising. No, it's always been there. But he wrote this great column. And I just don't see this column having been in the New York Times like a few years ago. There have been a few good things. But he starts out saying, I'm a vegan, but I'm also a realist. And then he goes into, you know, he's not expecting everybody to go vegan. But I love the fact that the first three words in this column are, I'm a vegan. Like he's not trying to pussyfoot around it. What the column is mostly about is that, unbelievably enough, the climate plan from the federal government, which, you know, everybody's touting and everybody's excited about because at last we're going to do something as opposed to doing nothing and just drowning, uh, you know, is great. The, it's called the American Jobs Plan, of course, but it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with animal agriculture. I mean, what the actual fuck? He didn't say that. <laughs> I said that. But uh, he's saying, you know, let's change that. And he's pointing out that the Good Food Institute is is saying we should be devoting at least, you know, two billion dollars to uh, to fighting animal. Well, not fighting animal agriculture. That's not how they put it because <laughs> they're, they're politically competent, unlike me, to promoting <laughs> uh, plant based and cell based meats. And as Ezra points out, that two billion just 
it's a drop in the a tiny drop in the bucket of the federal budget and and there should be far more than that but there should be at least that and it's so compelling he he goes through all of the harms to animals he also goes through the harms to people he he has the whole nine yards here and the industry is nervous i mean we know that because i follow rising anxieties every single week and if you listen to the end of the podcast as i hope you do you you know too the industry's a wreck and so i think you're seeing a piece of that that both the industry and the people who just don't want to change and the people who just want to eat meat and the people who just want to stay stuck where they are and think there's no problems in the world, they're getting, you know, anxious and their anxious leads to hostility because they're a hostile bunch. I mean, we always talk about how hope can be something we opt into and so can choosing to see this from a bigger perspective. And that's good. I mean, it's it's a good thing. And it, at the end of the day... It feels really good to know that I get the opportunity to live my life in harmony with my ethical beliefs. And that you get to live your life interviewing people who really are seriously changing the world. And that's what you got to do this week. So I'm very jealous of you for having gotten to do this interview. As I mentioned before, Christopher Soul Eubanks is a passionate animal activist who helped co-organize Atlanta, Georgia's first ever animal rights march. He's also a recent recipient of a Mercy for Animals People's Fund Award, and he plans to use education, public speaking, and creativity as tools to advocate for the climate, a vegan diet, and the end of all forms of injustice. Boy, this guy is a dynamo, and he'll be joining Jasmine right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Christopher. Thank you for having me. I'm so elated to be here today. As am I, I'm so happy that you're chatting with us today. I have been following your work for some time and I find it thoughtful and different. And I'm just really looking forward to picking your brain a little bit. So to start, Christopher, can you tell us about how and when animal activism became part of your life? Oh, I would say animal activism became a part of my life a few years ago. So I became vegan in the summer of 2016. Or I should say I became plant-based, like I stopped eating animal products. And it was for ethical reasons, but I just wasn't aware of all of the other ways that animals are abused and exploited. So, you know, I didn't I didn't consciously make a decision to, you know, to maybe stop buying leather or um, things like that. Um, even though it was in line with my morals, it's just I wasn't thinking that far ahead yet. Mm-hmm. I was only thinking about the consumption of animals uh, for food. So um, I would say I did that after I watched Cowspiracy. And once I watched Cowspiracy, went totally plant-based, then decided to, I decided to not eat any animal products. And I would say about six months after that, is when the ethics of animal consumption as a whole, in terms of how we exploit them for 
all different types of reasons um, became more at the forefront of my thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I decided to not only not participate, but to do something about it because it was such a form of exploitation and oppression that I had been participating in for so long. And, you know, I didn't even think about it. Like it wasn't even something that registered in my brain. And I felt that if it's something that I can do virtually my whole entire life and not give a second thought to, it's something that I need to speak out on and, and speak up about. So I just start, I decided to began doing uh, activism in my local community, start helping to organize vegan outreach, protests, being a part of disruptions, marches, and all different types of things. So I would say about six months after I went vegan is when I really decided to become um, an activist and, and speak up. I had read that Cowspiracy had a big impact on you. I'm curious what it was about that movie that deepened your commitment. Initially, it was more about the environment because at the at the time I was doing everything that I could to be a better environmentalist. So, you know, I would do things like recycle. Um, I wasn't really onto composting yet, but I was uh, trying here and there. And once I understood that consuming animals drains so much natural resources because of the way that we mass produce them, you know, it just made me realize that there's no way that I can be the environmentalist that I want to be and still consume animal products. Mm-hmm. Once I really made that connection, you know, it, it helped to bring about the ethical connections. But at that moment, it was mainly about the environment for the most part. So, yeah, really understanding the choices that I have and how it impacts not only me, but literally life all around me and the environment all around me mm-hmm. is what really kind of drove uh, the power of that documentary on me and made mm-hmm. me decide to you know, change my lifestyle. Uh, did you see Seaspiracy yet? Yes, yes, I just saw it. Yes. And what did you think? I think it was powerful. I think it's going to have the same impact that it had on me for others in a different variety of ways. And and I'm so happy that they did this movie in in the way that they did it because it just felt like for those of us that have watched Conspiracy, it just felt like the same formula just in a different applied to a different sector of animal exploitation. You know, they go through the whole, you know, initially I was just trying to be a better environmentalist. And then I found out about this and then the uh, industries that exploit animals are funding this. And it was like a you get really get to go through the whole journey again. So I felt very familiar with it. But I do think um, it's going to have a lasting impact on um, a lot of people in the same way that Cowspiracy had on me. What do you think of it? Yeah, I think that it's it's. A really important film. I think a lot of people who were interviewed in it were backbending to justify consuming or exploiting fish. And I think it's it would be very difficult to watch that film and come out of it continuing to rationalize consuming fish. I you know, I think it's 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 gonna be a, a giant splash, no pun intended. But I also wonder if people will stop there, you know, because we are such a species, uh, you know, that is used to justifying bad behavior that it's, I can imagine someone saying, well, I'm not going to eat fish again, but not necessarily continuing along that mindset of, you know, boycotting the exploitation of other animal consumption. Mm, I can definitely see that. I will say that maybe it was one thing that, well, I guess in the same way the conspiracy they didn't necessarily 
preach a vegan, I guess, stance. It was kind of uh, maybe understood for those that were in the know. But yeah, I will say that with it honing in specifically on seafood mm-hmm. or animals used for uh, food from the ocean, yeah, maybe the connection wasn't made as broadly in terms of mm-hmm. all animal exploitation. But I do think it's a, uh, it's a great entry point to you know have these kind of conversations. Right. I mean, I, but at the same time, <laughs> I've been vegan for 17 years and I can't remember anything coming close to this as far as talking about sea life. Like it's, it's totally breaking new ground. And it's ironic that I just said, oh, I, I wonder if people are going to stop their compassion after fish because it's usually the opposite. Like, oh, I'm a vegan. Well, I'm a vegetarian. Well, I'm a pescatarian. You know, I eat fish. Mm-hmm. And whenever people say that, I'm always like, because, you know, people like to tell vegans how many animals they eat. <laughs> whenever they tell me, right. I'm like, they're like, oh, I'm a pescatarian. And I'm like, oh, yeah, because you know what? Fuck the fish. That's always what I say. <laughs> and then people are like, oh, what? <laughs> so maybe now they'll understand it. But anyhow, uh, it is a great film and it is amazing to see how many more documentaries are out there that are really speaking to various aspects of veganism. I mean, you said you Mm -hmm. went vegan just like five years ago. The last five years have been like a film festival for animal rights movies. So that's phenomenal. Yeah. So Christopher, you also say, you mentioned that you're beyond being an animal activist, you mentioned being a climate activist and you're also a human rights activist. Would you say that all of these are in some ways the same thing for you? Well, I won't say they're the same thing, but they are definitely all intertwined. And I think they all all of these exploitations and all of these injustices that happen tend to come from a space of us feeling separated from others or us discriminating against others and seeing and and feeling disconnected from other beings or other things that exist in the ecosystem and in nature. Mm -hmm. So I do think that they are distinctively different um, with how they are played out. But a lot of the roots and a lot of the, um, a lot of these issues come from some of the same issues of discrimination. So when I first became a vegan, I did so because, like I said, I realized that I was exploiting or contributing to the exploitation of animals on such a everyday basis that I never even thought about it. And I didn't want to do something to other beings that I felt was done to me uh, th- th- and people of my heritage over the last you know, four or 500 years in America and, and, and across the world. I just felt like my blinders were off to uh, the, that oppression for so long. I, I couldn't fathom how I could perpetuate it. So although they, they are distinctively different, the way that they are carried out, it's a lot of overlap, I'll, I'll say mm-hmm. that. Yeah, they're not the same, but it's so so much intersectionality and, and, and commonality with how we perpetuate these systems of exploitation. Yeah, it, it can't be ignored. Right. It's not so much that the exploitation is the same, but the mindset of the oppressor is rooted in that same really awful loop of you are less than me and therefore I can do whatever I want to you. And so it, to me, it's like, okay, that's, that's, that's the root of the problem is the mindset. And that's why all of these social justice issues are a different spoke on the same wheel. Mm-hmm. I know that you're a photographer. And one of the things I love most about uh, 
our guests are when they have a creative outlet that becomes part of their advocacy. How are you using your photography as part of your activism? So one of the first things that I did um, when I became vegan was, so although I was an activist, uh, you know, within maybe six months after I became vegan, I think we look at activism as one thing, or we tend to view it as one thing and see forms of activism carried out in a, I guess, traditional manner. But mm-hmm. what I didn't really understand or something I hadn't really thought about at that time was how can I use the other skills that I have to further advance the cause and further advance the movement and bring up the rights of animals in other ways. So I started thinking about the photography that I was doing and I was doing photography and the pictures were pretty and I was doing a couple, I had an exhibition about nighttime photography and, and it was uh, nice and I liked it, but I really wanted to begin to use my talents and my skills uh, in a more purpose-driven way. So I decided to just start going to sanctuaries and donating the photography uh, and the pictures that I took at these sanctuaries and let the, uh, the sanctuaries use them in however way that they feel. So I did this for about a week. I just I think I traveled to five different sanctuaries and donated the pictures to them. And that was pretty awesome. Um, it was it was an awesome experience. But I also was using my photography skills just to document protests and events and really use these photos to help promote these events and share them online afterwards. And it really does have an impact. Like if you have any type of creative skill or just any general skill that could be beneficial to the movement, use it in whatever way that you can. Um, mm-hmm. I, if you're an accountant, if you're a bookkeeper, if you're whatever you are, you know, I don't think sometimes we think about uh, things outside of activism as ways that we can contribute to yeah. the movement. So yeah, art, being artistic was one of those things for me. It's just something that I've always loved to do. And the fact that I was able to like merge both of those worlds, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it was like heaven for me. So I created my uh, YouTube channel because I also do videography. So I started documenting, you know, people having outreach conversations. I was going to different events in and around Atlanta, you know, documenting the, uh, I don't know, like the vegan lifestyle in Atlanta. So going to pop-up shops and filming them and putting together uh, teasers for them so they can use them as promotion. So just a lot of different types of ways to be creative, but still um, have that vegan message behind it. I love that. That's super cool. And you created a presentation, is that right? To educate people about animal activism? I'd love to know about it and, and where you were able to present it. Yeah. So what I've been doing is I've had to just the great fortune of being able to speak at different universities. So the first university I spoke at was uh, was Georgia State University. I've been to uh, Georgia Tech. I just did a presentation. The name escapes me. I, I just did it. I have a horrible memory. <laughs> you keep you hold on to the good things. You hold on to the things <laughs> you need to. I right. spent like an hour before looking for my phone, and I kept moving my phone to look for it. So I feel you. <laughs> But yeah, so it was a uh, university in um, in the UK, and it was an online Zoom presentation. So what I'm doing is I'm creating different types of lectures to give to speak to uh, aspiring activists or people that want to be educated about animal advocacy, mm-hmm. and just touching on things that are that I think that are important to me that I've learned in my course of doing animal advocacy, and also things that I think could help people make that connection not only with 
against the exploitation of animals, but also being proactive and uh, making people understand that their individual personal actions play a, a large role. You know, there's power in our actions. So I try to, you know, help people make these connections, but still also make people understand that they have power to make some kind of change. What kind of reactions did you get? Did you find that the people who were going to these were already on board? Like, why did they, why did they show up? I'm always curious. Why did they show up? And what was their response? Yeah. So initially it was vegan clubs or, um, you know, uh, vegetarian and vegan clubs and colleges that were reaching out to me about, hey, can you come in and speak to some of the students about how to be a better activist or how do they start becoming activists? So that was the initial approach. But after I started doing a couple, I started to get people that were inquiring about, hey, can you speak about veganism and ethics of mm-hmm. uh, animal rights? So I had a, you know, um, a organization um, called Lunch and they reached out to me and they said, hey, do you mind speaking about this to our employees? None of them were vegan. Only one of them was vegan, actually. So I figured out at that moment, I was like, OK, I have to switch this up a little bit. Like I can't I have to you know, let them know that their individual power is a uh, they have individual power. But I kind of have to also help them make that connection. It's been a I guess a myriad of customizing the content to the audience in, in a sense, but still keeping in line the core values that I think are important. But now I think I've done a few to where I think I can start to give this presentation to a, a wide variety of people and I don't have to try and customize it as much now. So I, it's, it's really coming along well. And I have a few other presentations in mind that I'm working on that I think are really going to be interesting. But um, as of right now, I have one main presentation that I'm presenting. And like I said, the most recent one was done via Zoom. I'm doing them via Zoom. If I can do them in person, depending on the university or the location, I will. But for the most part, they're being done online right now. Can you tell us what the other ones in your back pocket are or is it too preliminary? Uh, Yeah, it's too preliminary. Okay. okay. All right. Keep us posted. I definitely Um, will. Well, one of the most amazing things about your work is that you have built your own platform as an individual working as an animal activist. Tell us how that happened and whether you think this is a good model for people to follow rather than attaching themselves to an organization that's working to help animals. It depends on what's most sustainable for you. So some people don't really like to be involved with organizations because there's a certain amount of uh, limitations that they have. I'm in between. So I do a lot on my own and I also do a lot with the animal save movement. So I got, I have my feet in both right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some people like the structure of being able to say, you know what? Okay. These are the things that we're working on. And, you know, you can have local autonomy over your own chapter per se. And it kind of just lays the foundation for you. And that was great for me when I first started out as someone who wasn't very familiar with, you know, how to organize events, how to, you know, keep people attendance and uh, keep people coming back and retention and all of these different types of things. That was amazing. But now I don't feel like I, I need that structure, even though I still participate in uh, these in various organizations. Um, I don't necessarily need it. I've learned a lot to where I can do events on my own or uh, I, we have a local community now and we do a lot of things independently. It's a mixture. And I guess it just depends on where you are and what you feel most comfortable with. But I think you just have to 
the best thing is uh, just getting out there and being active, however you see fit, whatever you want to start off with. So if you mm-hmm. just want to organize events by yourself, a part of an organization, and you find that works for you, keep doing it. That's amazing. If you feel like you need some uh, training and tutoring and you need to be under someone's um, umbrella, mm-hmm. then, you know, you can start with another organization. So just I think, like I said, most importantly, just just be active and however you decide to advocate. I found it interesting when you were talking about when you first went vegan that you said, uh, I went vegan in 2016. And then you said, actually, I guess I could say I went plant-based and then I really understood the ethics. And then I went vegan. I'm paraphrasing. But I thought that was uh, an interesting way of putting it. Veganism is obviously a hugely important part of who you are. What do you think the word veganism means to you? And, And how is it different from just not eating animals? That's a great question. It's something that I really like to hone in on and help people differentiate because the term vegan is used loosely and it's not people's fault if they use it incorrectly. For, uh, a lot of times it's just it's become a, a term where the clarity about it isn't always defined. So um, for me, veganism is just when you have the ability to and it's possible and practical for you. You do everything that you can to not contribute to the exploitation of animals. And, you know, I think one of the most important things in that is when you think about what's possible and practical, you know, we're not talking about what you would do in extreme circumstances or in very rare uh, instances. You know, if you were a desert island question. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Desert island or, you know, if you even if you were experiencing houselessness and you literally didn't know your next meal was uh, was coming from and someone handed you uh, an animal product and you had to eat that and you didn't know where you were going to get your next meal from. You know, in those situations, those extreme circumstances, those are abnormal circumstances Mm -hmm. for most of us. So veganism for me is about doing everything in your power in a, I guess, realistic and possible and practical way to not contribute to the exploitation of animals. And that not only includes not consuming animals for food, but also, you know, not wearing animals, not buying products that are um, tested on animals and just uh, not supporting industries that abuse animals or exploit that exploit them for labor or entertainment, you know, going to use animals as uh, horse and carriage rides and things like that, going to aquariums and zoos and in a variety of ways that animals are abused and exploited and, and circuses and things like that. You know, and when I have the decision, when I have the power, I don't have to contribute to those things. So I do everything in my power to not. But not consuming animals is just a dietary choice. It's just saying that, you know, I don't want to eat and consume animals as a part of my diet. That doesn't necessarily address the overall ethics of how animals are abused and exploited outside of food production. Great answer. I really well said. You recently received a People Fund grant for Mercy for Animals. Tell us what that is and what you're using it for. Absolutely. So this was a grant that was created by uh, Mercy for Animals. And the goal was to help sponsor um, Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority that are underrepresented in the movement. And they just wanted to use their platform to help fund a lot of the initiatives that you know, are near and dear to our hearts. So I believe it was, I can't remember if it was 12 or 15 recipients. We all received different 
grants from uh, Mercy for Animals for a variety of different things. And some of their grants were, um, I think they started like $5,000 and they went to maybe 25000 So it just depends on what your initiative was. So for me, what I'm doing is I'm in the beginning stages of starting my own nonprofit. And this nonprofit will address animal exploitation, um, one, through social media and education. So I'm going to start to produce a lot of content around animal advocacy. But also a lot of this content will be not only advocating for animals, but it's also going to show how animal exploitation contributes to so many other different types of exploitation in our society. And I really want to help people make those connections. So although this will be focused on the animals, you know, we just won't turn a blind eye to how animal exploitation impacts our entire society. Because I think a lot of times in the movement, we tend to not, I don't want to say, well, some of us do ignore the other oppressions, um, or at least just don't acknowledge how they are impacted, um, how animal exploitation is impacting them also. So I want to help people make that connection. So that's one of the things that I want to focus on with my organization. After we start to put out social media content, we're going to start to look into different types of uh, campaigns that we can uh, run. So who knows, maybe it'll be undercover investigations. Maybe we'll do pressure campaigns to certain um, businesses and industries. And also, who knows, maybe start chapters in different parts of the world. So it, it just depends. But initially, we have to, uh, I want to definitely get our content out so we can uh, kind of build a name for ourselves and get people familiar with our name. So when we start doing these actions and these campaigns, uh, we have a, a somewhat of a reputation. Well, you mentioned content. What is your vision for the type of content you will create and where would you like to present it? Yeah, so the content is going to be, ooh, it's going to be interesting. So like I said before, I had a YouTube channel that I was, um, that I had called Culture Vegan, which is kind of dormant right now. I don't really use it. But if you see the content on there, it's kind of fun, loose, creative, um, but also educational. So I want to I want to have a, a nice balance of style and flair, but a certain seriousness also attached to what we are doing with uh, under the uh, umbrella of this organization. And I definitely want to use the social media platforms that are that people are very familiar with. So we'll definitely have our Instagram page, our Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and all of these different types of uh, platforms. So we'll definitely use those, but who knows, maybe we'll develop our own social media uh, platform. You never know. I like it. I like that. So one thing we have in common, well, we have a lot of things in common as far as our passion around animal activism and other uh, other types of social justice activism. We are also both involved with Encompass. So for those who don't know, can you tell us about your work with Encompass? Absolutely. So I'm on the advisory board for Encompass and Encompass is, a, is an organization that helps to make sure that there's racial equity within the animal rights movement. It's so needed because once again, I think it's one of those things that as activists inside the community, we often are so hyper-focused on animal rights, as, as we should be, that sometimes the other things that impact our movement, we don't give them the attention that they need. Um, and these nuances are 
are extremely important because it could be the difference between us achieving animal liberation in a hundred years or a thousand years, you know, and Encompass helps to make sure that we have an inclusive movement. So they offer trainings, um, racial equity trainings to different organizations. They do consultations. They do a variety of things to uh, help organizations within the animal rights movement, make sure that there's um, that there's equity for all types of people inside the movement. And um, yeah, it's, it's just an amazing thing to be involved with them. Uh, just was lucky enough to be in a position where I was invited to be a part of their racial equity training this past fall. And after, you know, speaking with Arianesh and Michelle uh, on those calls and just kind of building a rapport with them, they asked me to uh, be on the advisory board. And I just jumped at it. I, I kind of felt like I wasn't even worthy to be on the board, but I was like, this is such an opportunity to, you know, share whatever insights that I have to, you know, uh, to, to Encompass, but, you know, to the movement overall. But Encompass is doing some amazing things. And I, I really, they have some things that they just spoke about. I don't, I'm not sure if I can discuss them yet, so I won't, but I'm excited about one thing that they have. And I, maybe I'll tell you later on. Yes, agreed. And as a as an advisory board member for Encompass myself, I, I understand the, the like, I'm not worthy feeling. I also think that they're doing incredible work. And I uh, really enjoyed... Enjoyed isn't, I was very moved by your essay for the book, for the Encompass essay and for the forthcoming anthology. Um, Enjoyed is a weird word. It was, I was wrapped. I was um, gut punched. Mm. And the title of your essay, as a Black man, I felt uncomfortable becoming an animal activist, echoes in often heard sentiment, at least recently, about the, the whiteness of the movement. But while what is perceived as the movement, and I'm doing air quotes, may be white, obviously there are many Black people who care deeply about animals regardless of their relationship to the institutional animal rights movement or organizations. So how have you balanced these issues to emerge as a leading Black voice for animals? Mm, um, That is such a big question. Um, Honestly, um, I've taken time. I think time has made me more comfortable with it. I think when I first started doing activism, not only was I new to animal activism, I was new to activism on this pace that I was doing it. Mm. Because beforehand, when I was doing activism, it was you know here and there. Um, occasionally, I was using my talents. I, I did a small documentary about a Black Lives Matter protest that happened a few years ago. So I was loosely involved with activism, but um, once I started doing activism on a regular basis, I had to learn how to, one, just, I guess, be, become an activist in a sense. And also I had to, under- I was also understanding the role that race played in uh, in the movement. So mm-hmm. I was like learning how to be in- involved in the community, but still feeling like outcasted in the community um, to a certain degree. After a while, it did become a little easier the more that I began to, I guess, organize and focus on making sure that events ran properly. Uh, as I began to have more responsibilities, I guess the uh, element of race wasn't as um, at the forefront of my mind, but it was obviously still there because it's, it was something that was prevalent. But I, I think it just took time for me to feel more comfortable 
and, you know, not only become more comfortable in that space of just doing activism, but um, also finding my voice and understanding that my experiences are unique. You know, I didn't think that my experiences when I first started doing activism were pretty unique. But once I started doing more activism and being involved with activism, doing a myriad of protests and activities and started to understand how race played a role in that, I started to feel more comfortable talking about it. And um, I think it just took, like I said, it just took a lot of time for me to process my thoughts and, and get them out and say things that I wanted to say, but say them correctly, which is kind of a theme for me, which is kind of how I, I, I believe I started to become effective in social media is because I, I used to, oh, and I still do, I think a lot about what I'm going to say before I actually say it. And I think that kind of helped out with me using my voice in the way that I wanted to use it when I mm. addressed race and uh, how it impacts the animal rights movement. So there are people that um, EA, I don't know if you're familiar with EA, uh, uh, EA Loves Life. She has an Instagram and Twitter profile. She's just so amazing and eloquent. She says things just amazingly beautiful. Um, and as another person, uh, Tyra the Taurus on Twitter, she's just, some people just have the natural ability to say things and don't have to think about them as much. And they just come out eloquent. Mm, I, I yeah. know that, that that's just not a skill I possess. So that's funny because I thought when you just said that, I was like, oh, like you, because <laughs> it seems to me that's it seems to me that you do possess it. But OK, go on. <laughs> I, for the life of me, I just I really have to think long and hard about how I say things and how they come across and what words I use. And it's become easier. But certain people like them, they are just so it's like they they have mastered it. Oh, it's just a part of who they are. I guess for me, it's a it's a learned thing. I guess maybe that's what I'm getting at. Something that I had to learn, and I feel like it's innate for certain people. So as I was learning um, myself and how I was, my uniqueness in the movement, I knew I wanted to address it in a certain way, and I just didn't want to say things and speak out on them. Um, so once I kind of gathered how I felt and what I wanted to say, I became more vocal. And um, it kind of led me to being able to do things like, you know, write this essay and, you know, speak out in other ways also and use my platform in other ways and not just uh, how I felt like I should, but also how I wanted to. Oh, well, I'm glad you're, I mean, the authenticity factor is one of the reasons why you are so effective in your advocacy and why that essay was so uh, powerful because, well, I, I'm very passionate about personal narrative as a means of social change. And I think it is exactly what you just said, that we we need to speak the truth to our story and not, not be overly self-conscious about how we might be perceived if we say this thing or that thing or how we say it or, because there's, I mean, there's so much of that, that, you know, like people who show up on the podcast with talking points and those are the talking points they're going to get through. And it looks, it sounds like a press release. And, and, and sometimes you, you're on the other side of that, even during a vegan workshop or, or, you know, when you're reading an essay in a book, it's like, where is the person behind this? Where is their story? What are they, what is their position? What are they trying to say? 
because we don't all ascribe to the same belief. We don't, we certainly don't have the same background. Like Uh every single individual has their own individual background. So we, we kind of, in a way, owe it to ourselves and to the animals to be authentic about our story. And, and, and you're doing that better than most people. I mean, you're doing it in a very powerful way. It's coming through with the eloquence that you say that you need to foster. Well, you're doing a great job at fostering it. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you. I mean, the the it's been it's been an incredible opportunity uh, on my end of editing the the chapters for the forthcoming anthology anti-racism in animal advocacy, igniting cultural change because or igniting cultural transformation because. There were the white activists like myself who are looking at our own role in, you know, I've, like I said, I've been involved in the animal rights movement for 17 years. I've always known it was a problem, that it was too white, but what have I done to address it, you know? And, and so a lot of white activists like myself are asking ourselves those questions. But then, of course, there are many people of the global majority who are writing chapters in this anthology, basically saying, uh, I was the only black person in the room for years and nobody saw that as a problem. And so I hope that we're turning a corner as a movement. I mean, I don't want to say we're turning a corner as a movement. I, I hope we are because we, we have to. I, I hope that this book that's coming out is is a tool to help turn that corner in any case, it's a very powerful essay. And, um, and I appreciate the work that you're doing. I know that, well, but let me ask you, do you think that we're becoming a more inclusive movement? There's no, this is not a trick question. I really mm, want to know. Yeah. Yes, I do. Because I think we are having, at least in my experience. So when I first started doing activism, maybe three to four years ago, I don't remember us having these type of conversations as heavy. I think now that they are, um, and also think after, you know, unfortunately, the killing of George Floyd, I think the whole world started to view things, or at least just have discussions on the mainstream level that weren't as mainstream. And I think that also impacted our movement. So not only do I think we are um, becoming, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, we, we've, re- we've reached the mountaintop. Like we aren't there yet. We still have a long way to go. So maybe, you know, a few years ago, it was, I don't know, one to 5%, you know, people of the global majority. Maybe now it's at eight or 9%, who knows? So we still, we are making progress, but I do think we still have a long way to go. So we are by no, by no means near what we need to be, but I do believe that progress is being made. Yeah. Yeah. We have a long way to go, but I think I agree that progress is being, hopefully being made. Now, Another thing that I find uh, interesting about your story is that you grew up in Atlanta. I think you're still in Atlanta, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. As Georgia becomes a sort of ground zero for anti-racist work, particularly the voting rights effort, do you see any potential to tap into that energy in your work? Absolutely. I think that it's going to be crucial for us, like I said earlier, to understand how these systems of oppression support each other. And I think a part of that is making these connections with other communities. So Atlanta has long been a place of uh, resistance against injustice. And there's so many amazing people doing so much amazing work in Atlanta, fighting for so many different um, rights and advocating 
that, yeah, I, I definitely think our local community has so much room to grow and can invite and foster so many different forms of advocacy and collaborate with each other and honestly help each other in each other's missions, because that's pretty much what is going to take to combat all forms of oppression is to not just look at our individual uh, battles that we're fighting with as isolated instances. We need to look at them as just different branches of different parts of the same tree. So I think there's so much room for us to not only participate in others' uh, activism and advocacy work, but honestly to learn so much from the techniques and the ways that other uh, other uh, other social justice movements are fighting that can benefit not only us, the animals, uh, the climate, but just every injustice, uh, any fight against injustice overall. Yeah, uh, I love that. I, I interviewed Pinky Cole recently, <laughs> and we talked a lot. Oh, yeah, awesome. I interviewed her for Veg News, and we talked a lot about uh, Atlanta and her own in- unbelievable otherworldly activism with uh, Slutty Vegan and and far far beyond <laughs> just just Slutty Vegan. It's it's just uh, incredible what she's doing. Speaking of which, and you could say Slutty Vegan, but what what is your favorite Atlanta vegan restaurant or Atlanta restaurant? So I've been to Slutty Vegan once, and the only reason I haven't been more is because the lines are so long. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love the food there. Uh, I actually went there and I bought food for my best friend. She's not vegan, and she didn't even know that it was, you know, really vegan. She just thought it was like a regular hamburger. She was surprised. You know, I'm used to eating vegan food that tastes like, I guess, traditional non-vegan uh, food. So, but she was totally blown away. But my favorite spots in Atlanta, one is called V Green. And I was just honestly there a few days ago. I love that spot. They're like an Asian fusion restaurant. It's just incredible. And another one of my favorite spots in Atlanta is a place called Healthful Essence. And they're a uh, vegan Caribbean food uh, place. And both of those are just incredible. But it's so many places down here in Atlanta Atlanta to eat at that are vegan. It is that you just won't ever have a shortage of things to try and experiment in Atlanta when it comes to vegan food. I love your city. I I was there. Well, now that COVID is happening, it's definitely been a while since I've traveled, but I always enjoyed going there because of the food and because of just the spirit of the city. So if you were to go back in time, come across yourself, okay, this is a weird question because we would go back in time and come across <laughs> ourselves, but what advice might you have to a, a, a much younger Christopher? I'm curious to like, what age is this advice? Uh, what advice might you have to like a brand new adult Christopher? And what advice might you have to a brand new activist Christopher? Mm, I'm torn on this question. So I get, when people ask this, I, sometimes I don't know how to properly respond. Because, okay, so I guess if I were to give any advice to myself um, at any of those stages, um, I would say, you know, things like be true to yourself, um, be honest with who you are, because I often think that sometimes we let the pressures of how society tells us we should do things and how we should be uh, control who we actually are. So. I would definitely let my younger self know that it's okay to, you know, not be traditional. It's okay to not 
feel like you have to follow the certain standards of society. If you don't want to go to college after you graduate from high school, that's fine. If you want to not drive until you're 30, that's fine. You know, it's just things that society puts pressure on us to do. If you don't want to get married, that's it's fine. If you want to be in a different type of relationship with somebody, it's totally fine. Just be who you are. But on the other end, I also feel like I wouldn't say anything to myself because I feel like the journey that I'm on and the way that I got here was supposed to happen the way it did. And I feel like I will be interfering with that process by trying to, I don't know, tell my younger self something to do or how to change or improve or be better. So I would just like my journey to stay the way that it's been, just to be untapped by my influence and learn what I'm going to learn, how I'm supposed to learn it and not feel like I am altering that path in any kind of way. Do you think that there is anything that you now would appreciate about younger Christopher that maybe younger Christopher didn't appreciate about himself? Mm, that's an amazing question, an amazing question. I would say I would appreciate, what would I appreciate the most about my younger self? I will say that I was a bit more... I don't want to say this in a bad way. My my anger against injustice drove me to sometimes feel like I could do more about it. I think as I've become older, I think I've I've kind of seen limitations on certain things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess it's like when politicians become involved in politics and they have to kind of play the game. I think as we get older, uh, we kind of start to see limitations in what we can do, but our younger selves see the whole world as, you know, fair game. So I think although I I am optimistic about things that I can do, I think my younger self would think that it was nothing I can do in my, I guess, where I'm at right now. I kind of see a little bit of a ceiling as to the maybe to some of the things that I can achieve. Oh, that's a good answer. <laughs> I have to noodle on that. Every now and then if I'm being interviewed yeah. and someone asks me something that I that I have been guilty of asking other people, I'm like, why am I on this side of the mic? It's so much harder, <laughs> like answering. So uh, that's a really good answer. Oh, that was probably the hardest question I've heard in a while. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll wear that hat proudly. Yes, yes. So you have said that, and I'm going to quote you, you have said that, We have to be aware of how human-based social issues impact the animal protection movement. Ignoring social justice allows inequity to thrive, leading to turmoil and internal conflict within the movement. Ultimately, ignoring social justice deters the progress we can make for the animals, and that some white advocates feel that by addressing human rights issues in the animal rights movement, we're being counterproductive to our cause and doing a disservice to the animals. This normalization of ignoring other forms of oppression has been used to build the framework for much of the culture in the animal rights community today. Also very well said, Christopher. How do you personally model incorporating human social justice into your advocacy without ever losing your focus on the animals? So I think it has to come from a place of genuine understanding of how they both intersect. There are times when I'm doing outreach with people and they 
may ask me about, you know, why am I advocating for animals and why am I not advocating for humans? And, you know, I, I kind of have to let them know that, uh, you know, this isn't a pick one or the other type of situation. You know, injustice happens in various forms. And they, like I said, come from all different types of uh, the same roots. Honestly, they come from uh, uh, the same roots uh, far too often. Um, so I, I think we have to be genuine when we are trying to help people make these connections. I think another thing um, in this uh, light is that I think we often see, we, we don't often see the missed opportunities that have come along um, for people to be, become a part of this movement. I think we just tend to look at the people that we have in this movement and the great work that's being done, but we don't see the you know tens of thousands of people that could be a part of this movement if we were to address some of these issues. And it doesn't necessarily have to be us talking about things that we are unfamiliar with or acting like we are well-versed in certain human rights issues. I think it just has to come from a place of willingness to be open and understanding and caring about what's happening in people's lives. I I've had plenty of advocates um, from the global majority you know, tell me just along side myself, say things like, you know, we I don't personally have the comfort or the benefit of being able to ignore other social injustices. Like I can't ignore how systemic oppression has impacted me and my friends and my family. That's something that I don't have the luxury of doing. So I have to understand how these things play a role in me and my life and uh, in my development. So by acknowledging how they impact me, I have to also be able to understand how it impacts the movement and the advocacy work that I'm doing. And I think when we tend to ignore these or at least just minimize them and act like they aren't such a big deal, you know, we are kind of limiting our compassion in a sense to the people that could help us. Because one of the things that's extremely unique about the animal protection movement is that it is comprised of humans. It's not comprised of the animals that are being exploited. It's about the exploitation of, you know, animals that are non-human. So we, unfortunately, you know, pigs aren't able to advocate for themselves against injustice other than when they're, you know, screaming in protest for their lives before they're being killed. You know, this movement isn't led by those that are uh, the individuals that are being oppressed in this movement. So knowing that we have to understand that, you know, we are all humans and the things that we are dealing with is going to impact us being able to work together. And if it's going to impact us being able to work together, that limits the progress that we can make. So let's understand it. Let's put it all out in the open. Let's talk about it. Let's not run from it and let's not act like it doesn't exist because the, the longer that we act like it doesn't exist, um, the the stronger it becomes. And then it's like wet cement, you know, the more and more that we let it sit, the closer and closer that it gets to becoming more stale. And once it hardens and gets um, that hard, it's going to be a lot harder to break that barrier down as if uh, opposed to if we can break that barrier down a lot earlier in the process. So I think we just can't ignore the things that are uh, that are working or the things that have um, come between us or have divided us and how that's going to impact our ability to work together. Mm. Uh, 
the wet cement metaphor is is a really strong one. It's very true. Do you think that by bringing people together who care about animals, the animal rights movement has the potential, perhaps unfulfilled at the moment, of creating common ground from which people who perhaps disagree on other issues can become more open to each other? I guess what I'm asking, Christopher, is can the animals save us all? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So I say yes, kind of, maybe, sort of. Okay. So (laughs) that's clear. (laughs) Okay. So I will say the first part of that is yes, I think it has the grounds to bring together people that may not agree on the total spectrum of what animal exploitation is um, to a common ground. Because I look at a lot of the work that, you know, some of the uh, welfare campaigns are doing, it's making powerful strides into breaking down the normalization of the oppression of animals. So when we look at ca- campaigns that are fighting for, you know, better quality of life for animals, although those may not be the initiatives that I personally advocate for, I think that is a part of the process too. I think we can't look at it as there's only one type of solution to this mass problem that impacts so many aspects and in, in so many facets of our society. So we're going to need a variety of things that's going to happen for us to, you know, bring about collective liberation. So we're going to need people fighting against unjust laws of how animals are treated in um, slaughterhouses as much as we're going to need, you know, people that are abolitionists and that are saying, you know, no abuse or all abuse or all use, excuse me, all use is abuse. So we need people, you know, addressing this from a variety of ways for it to happen. So in that regard, I do think that there's a lot of room for common ground because just like I know that my a lot of my family members, they may not ever be vegan, but a lot of them talk to me about the way that animals are treated in slaughterhouses and the way that they are just treated in general uh, and consumed and the violence and the exploitation that goes into this uh, form of uh, abuse. So they understand on that intrinsic level that animal abuse is happening. Now, is that enough for them to you know, adopt a vegan lifestyle? Not yet but I think it pushes the envelope further. Now, will this save us all? I am not sure. I'm not sure if veganism will be the thing that saves us all, but I think it will be the thing that gets us closer to saving us all. And I think the thing that's going to honestly save us all is to understand that we are all interconnected. You know, we are all each other in different forms, in different shapes. Like, I think that once we understand that I am made of the same elements that the tree is made out of, and the tree is made out of the same basic elements that grass is made out of, that that steel is made out of, that stars are made out of, that dark energy in the universe is made out of, once we can get to that connection and understanding, I think that's going to be the thing that saves us all. But we're we're a ways away from that right now. But I think veganism is a a strong Thing that's going to help us get there closer. Wow. Oh, that's hopeful. I like that. I like to opt in to hope. Christopher, this has been a real joy, pleasure, and honor. I hope that you'll stay on with me for a few more minutes to chat with our flock. We like to give them a little bit, uh, a little bit extra. 
Absolutely. But before you go, thank you so much. Can you please tell our listeners how they can find you online and support your efforts? Yes. Yeah, so you can go to my website, soulubanks.com. That's S-O-U-L-E-U-B-A-N-K-S.com. And it has links to all of the projects and things that I've worked on. Um, I haven't updated it in a minute. Uh, so maybe not all the things that I'm working on, but it's uh, links to all of my social medias and ways that you can contribute and support me. On social media, my handle is S-O-U-L underscore E-U-B-A-N-K-S. So that's soul underscore Eubanks. And that's the same handle on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Facebook is facebook.com slash soul Eubanks. And if you just want to support my activism that I do on a monthly basis, all my volunteering that I do, I have a Patreon account at patreon.com slash soul Eubanks, where you can subscribe on a monthly basis starting at $2 a month and it goes up from there. So those are a few of the ways that you can connect with me, but it's all on my website at soulubanks.com. And we will be sure to include relevant links in the show notes that correspond to this episode. So Christopher, thank you so much. I hope that you stay in touch. I'm very inspired by your work and I know you have a lot of projects up your sleeve. So please come back on our hen house in the future to tell us about it. And thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way, and well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head? Sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold, or go to jasminesinger.com slash fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is, as so often the case from meetingplace.com. And this is an extraordinary one. This is by Gregory Bloom from the Meat Business column. And the title of the column is, If You Can't Beat Them, Join Them. Is it time to join or beat the plant-based party? Well, the real the real key to this article is that Gregory's going into the business. I mean, the plant-based business. And he wants everybody to join him <laughs> and make him money. So he starts off by, you know, being in solidarity. If you believe the headlines, it would certainly seem as if the plant-based movement is taking over and that in very short order, real meat will be a thing of the past. I don't think so. And he points out, which is totally true, that if you go to restaurants, you know, there might be plant-based burgers on the menu, 
now, but, you know, they're not selling nearly as well. We all know that. Real beef burgers, he says, still pay the bills at all burger joints, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. And then comes the big but. Yet, our sales of real meat will erode as plant-based products get cheaper and better. You know, I honestly don't see how they get that much better, but they definitely need to get cheaper. You know, obviously, one of the reasons that they're more expensive is that uh, the meat industry is so heavily subsidized. But he says that there are other reasons. Well, he doesn't even mention that reason. <laughs> of course, there are other reasons. He thinks it's because the meat industry is just so much better at, at doing things, things like uh, Impossible Burgers and Beyond Meat. We can offer better products, he says, and better prices, easily undercutting their profits, also undercutting their nefarious anti-meat agenda. So he wants everybody to do business with him. And I I don't know exactly what it is he's selling, uh, some product or something. He's saying that they can get rid of the surcharge, the the upcharge for plant-based burgers because they can do it so cheap. And they have the ability to do it cheap because they have established customers Their overhead is already paid for with the meat equipment you use in processing. So their plant-based products are going to be more competitive. And so, you know, I would much rather myself do business with Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat because I like those people and I don't like the meat industry. But this is all good news. It's really good news. Bring it on, Gregory. Bring it on. Of course, he has to hint at the end that, that of course, this doesn't really mean anything. No worries. I'm not about to give up my long career in the meat industry, nor should you. I'm just expanding in order to stave off the competition from every angle. You should too. And this is another reason to do business with vegan purveyors of plant-based meats, because the industry is never going to undercut itself. They don't want to actually compete with themselves. They just want to uh, nobody else to compete with them. So... I'm sticking with my Beyond Burger. All right. This is a ridiculous one. This is from our, our pals over at Plant-Based News. 70, this, is about a, this article is about a study in Australia. 70% of men say they'd rather cut their life expectancy than ditch meat. Now, if, in case you're wondering whether they were asked, you know, would you, would you give up six months of your life to, uh, to ditch meat? No, it was not six months. Up to 10 years. <laughs> They're willing to die 10 years earlier rather than give up meat. Oh, my God. What's wrong with these people? What is wrong with these people? And this doesn't even take into account, and the article doesn't mention it, and I'm sure the study didn't mention the fact that it's not just the years of your life that you lose. It's the years of being incredibly ill before you die that you lose as well. But yeah, 80% of participants said they care about the environment. But 79% said they wouldn't give up meat to help the planet. Like, there's something seriously wrong here. (laughs) I think it's my anxieties that are rising as a result of this article. Even the idea that somebody's going to take their meat away is is just so neurotic. God, people people are nuts. And I don't think this, sadly, I don't think this is just in Australia. I'm sure, though they, they aren't, they're manly men there, aren't they? But, you know, still, just because they're sporty. How are they going to be sporty when uh, they're eating all this disgusting food? Animal activists seek ban on new farms. This is a, a panicked article from the Center for Consumer Freedom. For years, it starts off, animal activists have lobbied for laws that raise the cost of animal protein by banning common husbandry practices on farms. The regulations aren't about animal welfare. They are about making it too expensive for farmers to produce. 
and thus consumers to purchase animal products. This is accompanied by this picture of this little child, this little blue-eyed child hold, with a very, very sad face holding up an empty plane. <laughs> I, I swear, I swear. I want to point out the regulations when activists try to ban common husbandry practices, they are about making it too expensive for farmers to produce. At least that's what I'm all about. But it's not what I'm all about. I misspeak. They're also about improving animal welfare because if animals are going to live in absolute hell, I'd rather they lived in a somewhat tiny bit higher circle where they weren't tortured quite as much. I do. I, I, I totally do believe that. Though so what they're upset about here is, is direct action everywhere. They're talking about a campaign calling on California Governor Newsom to sign an executive order ending the creation and expansion of large-scale farms and animal processing facilities. So let's get rid of the CAFOs and let's get rid of the slaughterhouses. And in the letter, as this article points out, activists openly call the proposed order a, quote, first step. Yeah, I don't really think that DXE is really like hiding the fact that they believe in total animal liberation. It's not really something they're keeping a secret. Ah, but, but you know, according to the Center for Consumer Freedom, quote, the plan seems more like George Orwell's 1984 than it does a 2055 utopia. What animal activists refuse to acknowledge is that forcing veganism on the masses, oh, would that we could, would that we could, through higher prices, harms the poor the most. Well, that is just ridiculous. Like, it's just ridiculous. They do point out the tragic fact that nearly four in 10 people are living near or below poverty levels in California. That is a sad commentary. And the ultra, quote, the ultra processed fake meat alternatives these groups push tend to be more expensive and not any healthier. I mean, you know, this whole price, like there's a million ways one could, even if they were talking about totally getting rid of meat and milk, which they're not, but you know, the products are going to be more expensive. There are plenty of other things for people to eat and those markets will boom and they will, everything will get cheaper. You notice two of the articles this week are about plant-based products getting cheaper. That is just something that they really, really don't want to have happen. Unless like Rare Bloom, they're the ones selling them. Uh, then they go into this nonsense about how meat and milk are essential to healthy development in children, but but animal rights organizations don't care about that. They only care about getting the meat off your plate, not about the void left in its place. Well, I'll be very happy to fill that void with lots and lots of healthy foods, much healthier than the foods that these kids are eating now if they're being fed the disgusting meat and milk that is on their plates. Oh, they're getting they're getting nervous, folks. They're getting nervous, and it seems like they have good reason to be. I just wish it would all happen faster. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. 
Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.